pray together. Lord, we thank you that we can come and look at your word. Thank you that we're not alone. You've given us to one another, but besides that, you've given us your spirit, and you said that he's the one who guides us into truth. We pray that you would do that now. Uh, show us our need of a savior. Help us to trust in Jesus fully. Convince us of our sin. Help us to turn from our sins to our faithful Savior. Lord, we pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. I pray especially, Lord, that you would give me favor with those that listen and that you would glorify your name as a result of this look at Acts 28. And we pray these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Rome at last. We've made it. As I thought about Paul's journey, it was a good reminder of the Lord's faithfulness to him again and again and again as he's moving from his conversion where Ananias is told he's going to be my servant and he's going to speak for me before kings all the way through this most recent harrowing experience at sea the Lord shows his faithfulness to Paul again and again. Rome at last also made me think of home at last. There's a sense in which Paul is coming home, and I think that's a helpful metaphor as we look at these verses. Uh, made me also think about going home at last. Uh, when I was a little kid, my parents would take me to my grandparents, uh, my mom's side of the family in upstate New York, and I was intent on running around the house to making sure that all the things that were there the last time were there this time. And it was a similar experience when we would go to southwestern Michigan and my grandparents' farm there. I wanted to go in the machine shed and look at the tractors and then go in the barn and see how the animals were doing. Um, and then when it came to college, it was really wonderful to go home. I could hardly wait to get there. And I must say that when I came home, either to my grandparents or my own home, um, when I had those experiences, it was kind of a time to relax. I must say that I was not very focused on much other than enjoying my mother's good cooking or my grandparents' good cooking. And um, kicking back, and taking it easy. The focus was mostly on me. So we look at these verses in Acts chapter 28, verses 11 to 16. What I'd like to do is to probe a little bit in your life and ask you this question. What is your strategic intent as you live your life? And I want to go at that from a number of different angles. That's really what we want to do. So we want to notice Paul's strategic intent and then by comparison ask, well, what's your strategic intent? What are you trying to do with your life? What do you hope is going to be the result of it? And I want us to push on that because this is a time to remember all that Jesus has done for us and also a time to renew our commitment to him. Well, it's a short section Acts 28, verses 11 to 16. Let's just review what we find there. Verses 11 and 12, um, 
after three months. They've been on Malta for three months after that horrendous experience at sea. After three months, they find another Alexandrian ship which is headed to Rome. And they board and they go from Malta to Syracuse. Interestingly, it looks like Luke must have pulled out his notepad and gone down through the comments that he had made to himself through those experiences. He notes that this new Alexandrian ship has two figureheads on it. See it? Why? Well, they were like good luck charms for sailors which also underscores the point that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus and the others that are traveling together, they're still in a setting where people need the Lord. So that's verses 11 and 12. 13 and 14, they go from Syracuse up to Puteoli, and there spend seven days with Christian brothers. And from there, uh, Luke makes this one comment at the end of the verse, and he says, and so we went to Rome. Here we are. We've arrived. That's not quite right. They hadn't really arrived, but they're now at the toe of Italy's boot. And they get off the boat, and now they're going to walk the rest of the way. And the word gets out. Paul is coming, and so Christians from Rome come, and they meet them in two places, the market at Appia, and then also at the three taverns. Now, as best as I can tell, that was uh, at least a 40-mile hike. And so there was lots of time for Paul to talk with these Christians who had come out to greet him, and we're told at the end of that that he thanks God for them, and he's encouraged. And then finally, verse 16, he makes it to Rome. Uh, Julius apparently uh, transfers authority from himself to the other man who's in charge of the prisoners. And Paul now has a place where he can live, and uh, he does so with uh, one soldier watching over him. Just a comment about that. As best we can tell from what's here, what we know about this time in history and what we find in Acts chapter 12 when Peter's in prison, uh, Paul most likely was in this house by himself with a soldier and the guard, there was a changing of the guard every four hours, roughly. Um, what would keep Paul from running off? Chain. He's chained to the guard. Four hours later, new guard comes in, chains are transferred from the original guard to a new guard. So that's how Paul's life unfolds. If we just take that section and ask ourselves, what does it teach us about God? It seems like we can pull out at least these observations. God's sovereign. He had been working his plan for weeks, months, years. And uh, Paul now is finally in Rome, God's sovereign, which means that he's working his providential plan. All the details, as my grandmother would say, down to the lace curtains, are well under his control. 
And uh, he sees to it that things unfold according to that plan. But, Paul, uh, but the Lord is not only sovereign and providential in the way in which he directs us, he's also faithful. And so we see him being faithful to his promise to Paul to get him to Rome. And he's faithful to protect the message so that over and over again, the Lord gives Paul opportunity to witness for him. And besides that faithfulness, what else do we find? He's faithful to his missionary to protect him. Now, if we just take that picture of God for the moment and ask this question, what are the intents of your life? What are you trying to do as you live your life? I think it's worth just stopping here and asking ourselves, what happens in Paul's life as the Lord directs him down this path? Well, he wrote a book called The Letter to the Romans. And in that book, he makes this comment. He says, Romans chapter 8, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul had lots of experiences where there was some reason for him to wonder if God was going to really come through. As you think about the pressure that you feel, whatever it is in your life, what's your intent? Paul's intent was to rest in Christ and to trust him, to care for him. Is that yours? As you think about that, now let's go back and ask ourselves, what is the outline that Luke is following as he writes the book of Acts? Well, we're told, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' words are these. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the outline of the book of Acts. This unfolding of God's grace through human people, weak and failing like you and me, uh, from Jerusalem, Judea, all the way to the ends of the earth, and now Paul is there. He's in Rome. He's gone from Jerusalem to Rome. Effectively, we could say that Rome is the end of the earth, at least from one vantage point. Where does Luke get this idea that there's going to be that unfolding of the witness of his people? Well, it takes us right back to verses that we've looked at over and over again, but they're worth repeating. It's a theme that runs through the Bible to touch on a few points where we get this idea of this unfolding of God's kingdom and his grace to more and more people. We go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Lord taught his people to sing his praises that included an interest in all the peoples of the earth. Psalm 67. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God will bless us, and all the peoples will praise him. And then in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, 
The writer there focuses on this idea of the expansion of the knowledge of God around the world, and he says, a time is coming when the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be lifted up, and all the nations are going to stream to it. They're going to say, let's go up to the house of the Lord so that we can be taught his ways. And then there, then there are these very encouraging words for times such as these in which we live. Isaiah chapter 4 says that the Lord is going to work in such a powerful way that the nations will take their swords and they'll hammer them into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Never again will they learn war. There's a great day coming because of the power of God to work in his world to save his people from their sins. And so Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No question, at least in the Old Testament. Now, we might want to pause and say to ourselves, do you think that the Old Testament writers were a little overzealous in their view of the future? Maybe they just exaggerated. Well, what happens when we get to the New Testament? Jesus says, Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. God's working his plan and has an end game in mind. Then the end will come. And so Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, all power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. You go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, and I will be with you to the end of the age. There's this idea of closure in the Bible that God is going to get his job done. And so we see it then when we come to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. There's a gathering of people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. It doesn't say from almost every. It says from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. There is no group of people that's too hard for the grace of God to penetrate. And uh, that's because of the power of the work of Christ. And so Revelation 5.9 talks about this universal display of faith in the Lord. But it's rooted in the work of Christ. People from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation are going to be there because they have been purchased for God by his sacrifice. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who's also the lamb who takes away the sin of the world and his sacrifice is enough to pay for the sins of all those who will trust in him. So it doesn't seem as if the Old Testament writers are exaggerating. Now that's helpful then when we think about what happens here with Paul on his journey. We're told that he gets to Puteoli and he spends seven days with Christians. And then these Christians come out of Rome and he spends the rest of the time traveling to Rome encouraged by them and thanking God for them. Which is to say, Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself, and the Lord draws people together in local congregations who will serve him together, 
and in their service and worship be effective in witnessing to his grace. And so Paul takes his place among these other Christians and enjoys their encouragement on the way to Rome, and it's a reason for us to stop and ask this question. What is your strategic intent when it comes to your relationship to a local church? What are you trying to do in relation to a local church? I'm thinking about covenant, but any local church, you know? The Lord expects his people to gather together to regularly worship and serve him, to be a blessing to one another, and to be a blessing to a watching world. There's those two foci, if you will. Blessing to one another, blessing to a watching world, but that takes some commitment on the part of those who say that they're followers of Jesus. That's certainly what we see in the life of Paul. What's your intent when it comes to a relationship with the church? Now, we want to look at this passage from one other angle, and that is from the perspective of Paul's experience. And he tells us. He gets to Rome, verse 16, he's a prisoner in chains, as best we know. Did Paul see himself as a prisoner? You betcha. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. A prisoner of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. A prisoner of Jesus Christ. Look at Philemon. It's only got one chapter. Look at Philemon chapter 1, verse 1, verse 9, verse 23. Paul says, I'm a prisoner. I'm in bonds because of Jesus Christ. And then one other. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, I want you to know what has happened to me as a result of my being in bondage. As a result, the word about the gospel has gone out to the whole praetorian guard. And, so, and besides that, there are believers who because of my prison imprisonment and my faithfulness in talking to others about Jesus, they have been emboldened to also share the gospel. How does Paul see himself? I have not exhausted the places where Paul talks about his bonds, uh, where he talks about him being a prisoner. There are other places. You can look them up on your own. That was Paul's identity. True, Paul had been abused and maligned by Jewish people. And that had resulted in him being arrested and under Roman control. Claudius Lysias is the supervisor who rescues him from one ordeal. Then it's 
Felix, who keeps him bound for two years, and then it's Festus after that. But Paul doesn't see himself as a prisoner of the Jews or a prisoner of the Romans. He sees himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. How do you see yourself? I'm not talking about whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. I'm asking the question, how do you see yourself in terms of your spiritual identity? And you say, well, what's that have to do with me? Paul's experience. I'll tell you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Do you know what it says? Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul is all in on making Christ known to others. And he says, you follow my example. See yourself in this identity. You're a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's given you abilities and opportunities to interact with people, and yours is, yours is the responsibility of making him known as best you can. So here we have Paul, a physical slave, who is willing to give himself with all the enthusiasm that he can for the sake of freeing spiritual slaves. And that's our opportunity too. Think about the people with whom you rub shoulders. In 1732, two Moravian missionaries headed to St. Thomas. But a little background about the Moravians. They're not un unknown to us here in eastern Pennsylvania. You know that the Moravians calculated there are 162 hours in a week. And then they thought to themselves, wouldn't it be great if we could have somebody praying every one of those hours? And the Moravians had a prayer meeting went on, that went on for 100 years, people praying praying, praying, praying. And out of those prayer meetings then came numbers of people who said, I want to do something about those that are lost in the world. A slave from, a, a, a man who had been a slave in St. Thomas came to one of their gatherings and he talked about how there were other slaves. Would somebody please go to my sister who's still in St. Thomas? And so two men, David uh, Nitchman and um, Leonard Leonard, let me think. Oh yeah, Dohar. Leonard Dohar. Uh, Leonard was a potter and uh, David was a carpenter. They said, we will go to St. Thomas and we will minister to slaves there. Now, there's some, dis uh, some discrepancy as to the historical record. Some people think that in order for them to serve 
on St. Thomas, they had to become slaves themselves. They were willing to do that. It's not clear whether or not they were really given over to slavery, but they served there. And as they were leaving Europe to head to this place unknown, because of the call of Christ, they and those they were leaving said, may the lamb receive the blessing of his sacrifice. May he receive the reward of the sacrifice as we go and as we minister to these people. So what would it look like for you if you were intent in being as strategic as possible for the sake of Christ, who has died on the cross to pay for your sins? Let me make two suggestions. Follow the Moravians, first of all. Pray. Wouldn't that be an easy thing to do? Couldn't you pray today and tomorrow and every day for those people that have yet to come to faith in Christ. And you could educate yourself along the way. Here are some people that don't have the gospel yet. I wonder, Lord, please remember them. Debbie and I try to do that every night when we go to bed. Lord, would you please pray for these people who are serving you? And these, and these, and these. Because Jesus said, the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few, pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out and the better translation might be cast out or expel laborers into his harvest field so you can pray that'd be one concrete thing you can do and then to give yourself in a strategic way you can take the position and take the posture of Paul a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ you can say, here's what I want to do. Whenever the Lord brings somebody across my path, I intend to do what I can to speak a word for Christ, for the glory of God. And you see, that's kind of like preparing for going home. Remember what Jesus said? He said, um, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, then there you may be also. And where I go, you know, the way you know. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. We're going home. The Lord calls us to live intentionally accomplish his purposes in the meantime. Lord, bless your word to us, we pray. We thank you for examples from history of those that served you faithfully. We ask that you would help us to follow in their stead. May we be people who are intent uh, in giving ourselves strategically for that cause for which Jesus lived and bled and died and rose again. May this be a day of great eternal harvest for your kingdom. And use us in small, some small way we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're going to sing one more song, Infant Holy, Infant Lowly. It's one of my favorite ones. What page is it? 216. 216. All right, let's stand together and sing. <laughs>